Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I've got a very excellent and experienced guest, Craig A. Evans. Uh, He's the John Bisagno Distinguished Professor of Christian Origins at Houston Baptist University in Texas. According to Wikipedia, he's written 70 books and 600 plus articles, which is amazing. Very, very prolific. So I'm very excited to speak to him today. So Craig, thank you for coming. You're very welcome. Yeah, it looks like there are many, many topics we could talk about, you know, within the, within Christianity. Are there any in particular that you'd be wanting to discuss at this time? Well, two of the areas that are really uh, exciting, and I think the general public would agree, I know scholars would agree, it's archaeology and the bearing archaeology has on the biblical texts in general, especially relating to the Gospels in recent years as we find more synagogues that date the time of Jesus and other significant findings, but also old manuscripts, just two more new fragments of the New Testament, one from Romans, one from Revelation, just came out in the last couple of weeks. And so anyway, these kinds of discoveries, I think, just keep the field fresh and alive. There's not a year that goes by where we we don't have at least one significant discovery. Now, I think people enjoy that. They like seeing pictures of these artifacts. They like to hear what they're about. And so that's something we can talk about. And of course, there's the usual scholarship, historians, skepticism, skepticism that doesn't make any sense, can be easily refuted. Oh, there are a lot of things we can talk about. Okay. Yeah, we'll go into biblical archaeology. I've been watching a number of videos on YouTube, and uh, it's amazing. It's actually delightful to see discoveries made that corroborate the Bible. It's really cool. And I'm sure you probably have similar feeling. But, you know, what are, again, what are some of the most impactful ones to you and your faith, where you believe to faith at large, you know, biblical discoveries, archaeological discoveries that were recent? Well, let's talk about something that's pretty basic. That's the synagogue. In a series of studies, oh, beginning about 30 years ago, a very prominent New Testament scholar, he has since passed away, uh, was trying to make the case that there were no synagogues in the time of Jesus. And so people got together, there were groups of people, and the Greek word synagogue can originally meant just a gathering of people. This was like the word church, you know, the word ecclesia originally just meant a gathering of people. Eventually it comes to be linked to a specific building, a type of building that has a certain look, a certain function. Same with synagogue. So anyway, if this scholar was correct in making this argument 30-some years ago, And he argued for it tenaciously for about 10 years before finally giving it up. That means the four New Testament Gospels, the Book of Acts, Josephus, the Jewish historian of the first century, they're all anachronistic because they talk about synagogues as actual buildings that were identifiable, recognized as a synagogue with a specific function for gathering for worship, prayer, Bible study, preaching, singing songs, and so forth. And so... They, they, you know, this is an anachronism. It's pretty serious. And so his argument was that the synagogues weren't built until after the year 
70 when the Jewish temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. And a lot of people always assume that the synagogue was more or less a replacement for the temple. So was he right? Well, he, oh, well were, was the thought that individual synagogues were not needed and everyone went to the large temple? Is that why? Yeah, that was the idea. I think, you know, the synagogue is, or the temple is there. It's in Jerusalem. You want to celebrate Passover, you go there. Some sin offering, you got to get off your chest. So you go there, offer up something. And, uh, and of course, when he was making this argument 30 plus years ago, we already knew of at least three, if not four synagogues that very likely dated prior to 70 AD. So were probably available. I am in use in the time of Jesus. And we also had an inscription that referred to a synagogue. The inscription was found under the rubble of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70, and it referred to a synagogue ruler and his father, who was a synagogue ruler, and his grandfather, who was, which means that these guys are rulers of a synagogue and, and dating all the way back to the be very beginning of the first century AD. So, you know, it was really strange. And Josephus, you know, he lived, uh, he was born in the time of Pontius Pilate, at the time of the outbreak of the revolt in the year uh, 66, Pilate, Josephus would have been 29 or 30 years old. Uh, he would have known perfectly well whether or not there were synagogue buildings prior to the war. He writes several books, and we're really glad he did, his Antiquities, his Jewish War, plus a couple of other writings. And in these writings, he refers to synagogue buildings, sometimes vandalized, sometimes defiled, and so forth. And so it's like, well, that's an awful lot of evidence that would suggest that the Gospels are correct. They're not being anachronistic. There really were synagogues. And so why is this important? Well, the Gospels all say that Jesus preached regularly in their synagogue throughout Galilee, that he healed people in the synagogues. And if the Gospels are simply wrong, all four of them, that there were no synagogue buildings, that's a huge mistake. And it would then raise questions about can the Gospels be trusted if, they, if they're so badly mistaken about such an important thing as that. Well, where are we today? Several more synagogues have been found. Last year, a second synagogue was found at Magdala. I was in Israel when that discovery was made. I was at Israel when the first synagogue was found at Magdala in 2009. I had the chance to visit and actually participate in some of the digging in 2010 and 13 and other times. And so we're up to 12 synagogues now that archaeologists identify with confidence and date to a time prior to 70, and in some cases, a couple of them reaching the first century B.C., the oldest might reach back to the second century B.C. So there's no question there were synagogues in Israel, in Galilee specifically, in the time of Jesus, and the ongoing archaeological work is showing that. And the work also shows that the Galileans took their faith very seriously. And so the idea that the Galileans were cosmopolitan and anything comes and goes, and the conservative Jews were in Jerusalem, that's actually been flipped. We now believe that the really conservative Jewish believers were in Galilee, and the more cosmopolitan, willing-to-compromise type Jewish believers were in Jerusalem. And so that's why the Galilean Jews, when they come south for the Passover, they stir things up because they're unhappy with the ruling priests. They see them as too worldly and too compromising. It's kind of an analog to today. It seems like, you know, conservative folks are more in rural areas and, you know, progressives and, and uh, liberal people are more in the cities. So I guess it mimics that. 
I think you're right. I think that's a very reasonable inference that can be drawn. And, and so this new nine, by the way, why do we say this? Well, not only are there all these synagogues, there are also mikvot, that is ritual immersion pools. And so they took purity seriously. And the Gospel of John, the famous story in chapter two, where Jesus turns the water into wine, there's reference to six stone water pots or water jars for the custom of Jewish purification. Well, stone water pots are heavy, they're expensive, and the Jewish people did that because stone wasn't susceptible to uh, defilement, as were ceramic pots. And so sure enough, in Cana of Galilee, where this story is, is situated, water pots, water jugs have been found in the excavations, and they're found elsewhere, both in Jerusalem, but also in Galilee. So the Galileans took purity very seriously. The ritual immersion pools are in almost every home. They are attached, also larger ones, to synagogues. And so this idea that the Galileans were kind of loose, loosey-goosey when it came to Jewish faith is just not true. They took it seriously. But the real jackpot discovery at the first Magdala synagogue was the decorated stone found right in the middle of the room. And the stone was decorated with motifs that reflect the temple in Jerusalem. The stone was even uh, facing south toward the temple in Jerusalem. And it's not a one-off because a second stone like it was found at Horvat Kur, mounted in the wall as a trophy of a 4th century synagogue. So it's a 1st century B.C. or A.D. stone, decorated stone, embedded as a memento or a trophy in the wall of the later Jewish synagogue. So in other words, it's valued. And so this is really astonishing to us that, huh, the Galileans took their faith seriously. They believed in Jewish faith. They believed in the temple. They made their pilgrimages every year to attend various holidays, especially Passover. And they conflicted with the ruling priests because the ruling priests were seen as worldly, cosmopolitan, compromising. And guess what? Archaeology shows that. We've excavated these beautiful mansions, some of them very likely high priestly or ruling priestly. Who else were wealthy enough to live in them? And you had imported wine from Rome. You had you have uh, glassware, jewelry made in pagan lands, brought into high priestly homes for decoration and so forth. And so this just makes us wonder, huh, we need to flip the script, as it were. It looks like the Galileans were the theologically devout, theologically conservative, and the elite in Jerusalem that ran the temple, less so. Well, doesn't that make sense then? Jesus going into the temple precincts, and he becomes involved in controversy, and the crowds love him, and the ruling priests are angry and want to know how to get rid of him. So the archaeological evidence is fleshing out the portrait we have in the Gospels. If the Gospels were inaccurate and just fiction, and just had it all wrong, you wouldn't have that kind of coherence between the Gospel stories and the finds of archaeology. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700-plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000-plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, 
including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, it's interesting that the bar is set impossibly high, you know, when it comes to the Bible. If there's anything that doesn't corroborate everyone, you know, there's so many people ready to say, all right, that's it. It's all no good. Forget it. And yet, I mean, in your experience, how many, how many corroborating pieces of evidence are out there? Well, there in, in, you know, it's like, almost countless. It's almost, and there's no point in even trying to count it yet. Archaeologists and experts in a holy land geography and topography will tell you that only five or six percent of biblical topography has been excavated. So in other words, what I mean is you have certain areas that the Bible mentions, you have certain cities, certain roads, and so it adds up to, you know, so many square miles, as it were, of uh, area that could be excavated that the Bible talks about, and only about 5% has been excavated, and a lot of that that has been excavated isn't, isn't total. You'll go and visit places, and there are still sections of it yet to be dug up. So, you know, that's why arguments from silence are so dangerous for somebody to say, well, you know what, they haven't yet found such and such. So maybe the Bible's got this wrong. Well, that's a reckless uh, objection to raise, given how much more there is yet to dig up. And as we keep digging things up, you get this correlation. That's that's really embarrassed the minimalists. Uh, if we were talking about the Old Testament, we could go on and on about that where the minimalists initially said there is no King David. He's kind of a, you know, Robin Hood figment of imagination who never was such a person. The biblical stories are written hundreds of years later. They've made up this celebrated mythical king who never existed. Well, then they, you know, in 1991, as you know, they find his name carved in stone at Tel Dan, way up at the north, just south of the Lebanese border. And then, well, did he? Okay, maybe he did exist, but was it much of a kingdom? Well, they found now his administrative buildings and remains of his palace in Jerusalem. And I visited this dig site several times, and we we know by the sheer size of it, its complexity, that it's an administrative uh, facility that would be over in charge of or governing over a large kingdom, not a tiny little area just around Jerusalem. And then, of course, the skeptics will say, oh, okay, maybe there was a kingdom and it did reach from the Sinai in the south to Lebanon in the north. Maybe Jerusalem was the capital city of this United Kingdom. Maybe David and Solomon are real people. But who, who lived back then who could actually write uh, so the stories are not written down for several hundred years, and who knows how much fiction and myth and so on. Well, we find the stone at Kayafa, or uh, the ostracon, a piece of clay pot with six or seven lines of Paleo-Hebrew on it. This dates to the 10th century and seems to be referring to the need to appoint a king. In other words, this goes back to the end of the judges that led up to the appointing of Saul, David's predecessor, as Israel's first king. And it's the same kind of Hebrew you find in the books of Samuel and Kings. So who was who was around back then to write in the 10th century BC? Apparently lots of people. And by the way, since then, the celebrated curse tablet, lead curse tablet, was found on Mount Ebal about two years ago and has been published now. And that probably dates to the 13th, possibly the 14th century. And it's written in Paleo-Hebrew that's similar to the Kaiapha Ostracon. So were there people back in the days of the judges 
back in the days of the early kingdom of David, Saul, David, and Solomon? The answer is yes. There's no question about that. So anyway, that's just an example of Old Testament, where as things continue to be found, the minimalists, the people who basically argue from silence and say the biblical text is wrong because we haven't found anything to to corroborate it, they end up being embarrassed. My recommendation to them is just shut up, listen to the biblical text, and keep digging. Uh, We have found, by the way, just in the last 15 years, we have found seals, clay seals that have been baked to the fire and are hard as stone now, with the names Hezekiah and Isaiah. Well, we know them very well. They're contemporaries. You can read all about them in 2 Kings chapters 18, 19, and 20. You can read about them also in Isaiah, the middle of that lengthy book. And here these are found, and they're three yards apart, found in the ruins of what would have been part of an ancient uh, Israelite uh, structure just south of the Temple Mount. I was just there last year looking at the very places where they were found. And of course, I've seen them. They're in the museum now. And by the way, we're up to 85 now. I can remember not that many years ago, they'd say, well, you know, how many people who are named in biblical literature do we do we know really existed by thanks to archaeological evidence. Well, I remember some years ago, it was announced we're up to 50 now. It's up to 85 now, 85 keen persons in both Testaments. And we have hard evidence referring to them that's not in the Bible, but supporting the Bible that they, in fact, did exist, hold the office that they, you know, allegedly held and so forth. Again, a quick question here. What is the earliest writing of the Gospels right now that is that is uh, commonly accepted, and what new pushes are going in that direction to ascertain like when the Gospels were first written? Truly, okay, there, that's a great question. There are two things that I can say about it. One of them is just the physical evidence itself. Papyrus fifty-two, its official number, and you know that one in Manchester, the Rylands Library, Manchester, and I've had the privilege of seeing it up close. And that's uh, a, a fragment of a single page. Uh, the remains of of a few verses on either side from John chapter 18. Most still agree that it dates to the first half of the second century. In other words, somewhere from about 110 to 140. The precise date of 125 is, is very artificial. We can't ever be that precise in dating something unless there's an actual date on the document. So, This fragment of John 18 is still the oldest fragment. Probably in second place is P64, which is uh, three fragments of Matthew 26. They're in Oxford at Magdalen College. I've had the privilege of seeing them. They could date something like the 170s, 180s, something like that. The much talked about and controversial Mark fragment that was published five years ago that's just a piece. It's it's from the first page of Mark, and so we have a little bit of verses 7 and 8, a little bit of 13 and 14 on the backside of the page, and it probably dates to the late 2nd century, so maybe as early as 190, but it could be early 3rd century, so 210, 220, something like that. In any case, it's the oldest fragment we have of the Gospel of Mark. So that's physical evidence. So here are fragments that are only about 100, 150 years removed from when the originals were written. But what's really interesting is that Thanks to other discoveries, including books discovered in Egypt 
and doing archaeological stratigraphy, that is dating and measuring the layers of an excavation, we're finding, for example, first and second century writings that are thrown out in the third and fourth or fifth centuries. In other words, they're in use 200, 300 years or more before they're thrown out. We have a written testimony where they talk about autographs that are several hundred years old. What does this mean? It likely means the autographs of the New Testament remained in circulation to be studied and copied for 200 years. They weren't just thrown away after a few years. And that that's, helped. that's what I was going to ask you, actually. Yeah, it stayed if you look at text. Right. If you, if you consider what the Gospels would, would have been originally written on, and how long that I guess parchment and, and how long that would have lasted on average, and how long would it have been until people would have said, "All right, these are you know falling apart. We better make copies." Is anyone able to estimate estimate when the Gospels were written? How close well, to the time of Jesus? Jesus yeah, that see that actually. Okay, I've answered part of the question with the first thing about the physical evidence. The second question uh, has to do with understanding better what Papias, an early church father, states in the early 2nd century, where he talks about tradition that he's learned from the Apostle John, John the Elder. He talks about how, well, Mark wrote down what Peter taught. Peter gave the teaching of Jesus as anecdotes are called crei, useful little anecdotes. Mark wrote them down, but not in order. We now know what that means is he didn't write out the Gospel of Mark right away. He simply compiled Peter's teaching. This later became the canonical Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They tapped into this Petrine tradition. He then also talks about Matthew writing it out, a gospel in the Hebrew language. Well, that's not canonical Matthew. Canonical Matthew is in Greek. We don't think it's a translation. I do know that there are some who disagree with that. But the majority view is that the four gospels we have in the New Testament were composed in Greek. And so what we're learning from Papias, and it's because of a manuscript discovery, a manuscript by Galen, where he talks about how notes are taken, not in order, how they're later edited and put in order and are ready for publication. From these statements, we understand Papias better, and we understand what he's saying. What he's actually talking about is the very first stage of the gospel composition while Peter is still alive. And so you have to go back. You can't be much later than the 50s, early 60s. And so this does have an impact on when the gospels are written. So I can tell you right now, as I'm revising my commentary on Mark, uh, the introduction will talk about the date of Mark. I'm revising my own ideas from several years ago. And so I think it's very likely that all three canonical gospels in their canonical form are prior to the year 70, which is why none of them talk about the fiery destruction of the city at Jerusalem, which is what Josephus writes afterwards. That's how he describes it. This is very early tradition. And so I think we have to date the Gospels earlier. There are are two agnostic scholars, so they don't have a faith uh, dog in the fight. They think that Mark's Gospel might have been written as late as the as early as the late thirties or even the forties. That strikes me as a little too early, but both of them are suggesting no later than the year forty five, which is extraordinary. So I'm rethinking the antiquity now that we know that the autographs were treasured, they were not just thrown away. Never. 
Uh, I think the Romans deliberately burned them. We actually have stories about Christian books being confiscated and consigned to the flames. Otherwise, I think we'd still have autographs to this day. When Jesus was first resurrected and, you know, appeared, I would think that the apostles really would have been on fire maybe to tell the story, or maybe they would have been inspired to go out and, you know, and preach the gospel right away. If the gospels did originate in the 40s, let's say, why does that sound reasonable instead of them being written down right away? You know, the first thing after after Jesus had appeared and ascended and everything, why wouldn't they write it right away? I think they were caught up in evangelizing? Well, okay. or what do you think? You're, you're putting your finger on an interesting cultural difference between us and them. If you and I bumped into the apostles in the first generation church, say one week after Easter, that's exactly what you and I would do. We'd whip out our notebooks, our tape recorders or whatever, and we'd say, okay, 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 slow down. Tell me what happened. Tell me what you saw. Who are the other people I should talk to? We'd be taking notes instantly. That's our culture. That's how you and I think. That's not the culture of that time, which was oral. It was proclamation. And so when they realized Jesus was raised up, when they met him and he told them to preach, he never said, write down. He didn't say, okay, it's time to compose gospels or anything. Get out there and preach. Make disciples. And that's what they did. But in the passage of time, they recognize, wait a minute, wait a minute, these guys, the eyewitnesses aren't going to be around forever, and it, and, and the church is geographically expansive. It's one thing to, to get everybody together in Jerusalem or get everybody together in Galilee. What do you do now when you have thousands of believers, and they're in Asia Minor, they're in Greece, they're in Italy, they're in North Africa? You know, how, we, we can't, how do, what do we do now? And I think that's what led to the impulse to start writing things down. Obviously, we have letters. Letters are being written down in the 40s. I think James is authentic by the brother of Jesus. We don't have time to go into all of that right now. Many scholars do think it's an authentic letter by Jesus's brother James but after he took over leadership of the church in Jerusalem. So it's a letter that I think was written in the 40s, late 40s probably. Paul's very first letters are written in 49 or 50. So the church is barely 20 years old and people are starting to write as needed. And so I think it's necessity. So Paul can't be in three places at once. So mm. he writes letters. And then I think that dawns on people, maybe maybe we need to start taking notes and writing things down. And the interesting thing, Richard, according to Papias, when Mark wrote down Peter's teaching, that actually, that bothered some people. Like, what are you doing? And so Peter gives him permission. It's noted that, oh, Peter had no objection, as if there would be an objection. And that shows you how oriented they were to oral proclamation. So Mark's decision to actually start writing things down, because he was Peter's translator, he starts writing things down, probably for his own ease. Peter approves of that, and that's what pushes us toward Gospels. And it isn't long after that, we have three synoptics, and then we don't know when John was written, possibly in the 60s, though most say probably not till about the year 90. And so all of a sudden you've got these Gospels, and I think it exhausted the Dominical tradition. What Jesus taught, what was important, what his apostles were to preach has all been written down. And then when you get into the second century, you have writings where people want to change. 
the apostolic proclamation. They want to augment it. They want to shift it into a new direction. And so you start getting some new documents with some new ideas. And those are the apocryphal and heretical gospels that are produced in the second and third centuries. Well, a couple of questions here. So the Old Testament would have been around, though, on scrolls, right? Oh, that sure. would have been read. So there, there was a world tradition, but there also would have been a, I don't know, pretty entrenched tradition of reading, you know, well, scrolls. Let me comment on that. I think I think that's part of the reason why, initially, why did anyone need to write anything down? Because it would never occur to early Christians that what they were saying and talking about could become the equivalent of written Scripture. They already had written Scripture. They have the Bible, what we call the Old Testament. They have the Law of Moses. They have the prophets. What else do they need? And and that's why there was, I think that actually under initially undermined the idea of writing down, creating a New Testament. And so I stick with what I was saying earlier. They see Jesus as fulfilling the written scripture. And so now it's time to proclaim that Jesus has fulfilled it. And he's been raised from the dead. And God has brought about his promise of salvation after all. And so who needs written scripture? It's only after the fact, these pragmatic needs, a scattered church, eyewitnesses aging and dying, apostles disappearing, that it becomes a, an idea that, you know what, maybe we ought to write down what the apostles are saying. And sure enough, eventually it comes to be understood as... Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Another question, so why would John wait essentially till the end of his life in order to write? What do you think was going on there? Well, there is a possibility that we actually know that it's given away. It's chapter 21. Most people who read John get to the end of chapter 20, where it says these things have been written. You know, Jesus did other things. These things have been written that you might believe and have life in his name. That appears to be the conclusion, verses 30 and 31, the last two verses of chapter 20. That all of a sudden, out of the blue, we've got this appendage where Peter and everybody's at the beach and they're fishing, you know, or they're out on the out on the boat fishing, and they're on the beach with a campfire. They look, who is that? It looks familiar. Why it's Jesus? And we get that famous scene where Jesus cooks some fish, and he asks Peter three times, "Simon Peter, do you love me?" That famous passage. Well, in it, there's concern about how long the beloved disciple will live, and so there's the mistaken idea that Jesus would return, the second coming would occur while the beloved disciple was still living. Well, he apparently has died. And so this chapter 21 is an appendix that explains that's not what Jesus foretold. He wasn't saying that, that the beloved disciple would stay alive until the second coming. He simply said to Peter, however long this disciple lives is none of your business. Peter, you're going to, you're going to be martyred. The day will come when you're told to go here or there and you don't want to. But as for this guy, when he dies, it's none of your business. And so the author of chapter 21 wants to make it clear that Jesus did not, in fact, prophesy that he'd be alive when Jesus returned. So that could give us an idea that the beloved disciple had recently died, and so chapter 21 was a necessary addition. Now, that doesn't mean that chapters 1 to 20 could not have been published as early as the 60s, but it makes me think that it probably, they were written down near the end of his life. A year or two later, he does die. This rumor starts, wait a minute, there's something wrong. I thought Jesus was going to return before then. And so chapter 21 is added. It's chronologically out of sequence. It's then added 
to the end of John's gospel. That's what we have. And so the early church fathers thought that. That's why they dated it to the 90s, early 90s. And I think that has a lot of credibility. I'm certainly open to an early date. It could be prior to 70. It could be written in the 60s. A scholar has argued that the being thrown out of the synagogue passages could easily fit the late 20s, early 30s. You don't have to say that, oh, that reflects the 80s or 90s. Those passages could be very historical and reflect the time of Jesus also. So this question is still up in the air. Yeah, very interesting. When do you think the Old Testament would have come and joined with the New Testament? And I know there was the Council of Nicaea, but you know, like I guess in the 300s. But so uh, what do you think the relationship in the Old and New Testament was? Were they circulating separately? Would you have gotten the old scrolls and then added on the new material? Like, what do you think that was like? Well, I think the way I would phrase it, the early church believed that it had its it had all the sacred scriptures it needed initially. They had the law of Moses, they had the prophets, and then there were a few other writings. Psalms was often considered prophetic in itself. So in the time of Jesus at the first generation church, you don't have a settled Old Testament canon, believe it or not. The writings are all written, they're all copied, they're all circulating. But you'd be hard-pressed to find three rabbis, say in the year 50, who would give you the same list of books. They would all give you the five books of Moses. They'd all give you the prophets. They'd all give you Psalms. And after that, it's hard to say. And so it's a gradual process. The early church marched in lockstep with uh, the synagogue. They recognized the same books. They did. They thought the synagogue knew what they were talking about, and so they accepted it. The church favored the Greek version, and later Jerome said, no, we really need to stick to the Hebrew. And so his Latin text that became known as the Vulgate is based upon the Hebrew instead of the Greek, but it's a gradual process. And so as the Gospels are circulating and are considered Holy Scripture, in a sense, Richard, it's the new Testament writings that are attaching themselves to the Old Testament, not the other way. And the reaction was to Marcion, who in the middle of the second century was a very early innovator who said, hey, listen, we need to have our own scriptures, an edited version of Luke, some of Paul's letters, and that's all we need. We don't need the Old Testament because the picture of God in the Old Testament is crude and God is vengeful. But the Heavenly Father of Jesus in the New Testament is loving and merciful, you know. And the early church wisely said that is wrong. The Old Testament, you know, the God of the Old Testament is the same God who is Jesus's Heavenly Father. The Old Testament is our scripture. And so that was an interesting incident that I think helped developed thinking of early church fathers about the question that you just raised. Where does all this come together? How do we look at the older scriptures, and should we add to them newer scriptures? And of course, that's what the church did, finally settling on the 27 books that make up the New Testament. Wouldn't there have been, I guess, I know I'm always thinking with modern mind, you know, when the Council of Nicaea was convened, would that have been the first time where we have what we know as the Bible in a complete form? Would it exist? No. No, you know, Richard Nicaea wasn't concerned with the contents of Scripture, the canon. Uh, that wasn't the issue at all. I think there was still a pretty vague idea. You know, read Eusebius. Eusebius goes right up, you know, his first edition, I think, of his church history was 311 or 312 or something like that. He comes up with a second edition with an edict of Milan, the Tolerance Edict of 313. And, you know, ecclesiastical history 
goes through about four, maybe five editions. So when you talk to him, in his mind, the scriptures are pretty well settled, but he rejects Second Peter. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, he accepts First Peter. He rejects the gospel of Peter. He rejects the apocalypse of Peter. He rejects the sermons of Peter as all spurious and later. And of course, he's right. He's a little iffy about the book of Revelation. And that's for political reasons. Revelation has Jesus Christ returning and destroying the Babylon, which most understood to be the Roman Empire. And you can see he's trying to woo Constantine. His mother has become a Christian, Queen Helena. The last thing they want to talk about is Jesus coming back and killing the Roman Emperor and destroying the Roman Empire. So he's not too sure he likes the book of Revelation. So my point is the New Testament canon is not firmly fixed, but most people are pretty happy with it. So Nicaea in 325 was all about Christology. It was all about, okay, is Jesus fully divine or not? What is the correct way of talking about? And that was the real agenda of Nicaea. And I don't care what Dan Brown says, Emperor Constantine wasn't busy telling the Christians what they're supposed to believe. And he certainly did not create the New Testament or select the four Gospels as Dan Brown's fictional character in Da Vinci Code misleadingly asserts. The canon, the contents of the canon wasn't the issue at Nicaea. By the way, just check with Lee McDonald, some of his books that have come out in the last 10, 12 years. He makes that crystal clear. He talks about the canon lists that were written up at later canon councils. Nicaea had nothing to do with well, there wasn't even book back then, I guess, until Gutenberg. So what would it have looked like? A collection of scrolls, a collection of been a, a separate document that had table of contents or a list of what to include? When Christianity began to spread in the first century, there were codices, that is, sheets, papyrus, or parchment attached at a spine. So in other words, the beginnings of a book that would look like a book to you and me, that you open up page by page. Otherwise, most books were book rolls or scrolls. But for some reason, Christians very quickly, by the end of the first century, preferred the book form, the codex form. And the whole idea of a codex, it comes from waxed words that are hooked together, notebook. And so the Christians said, that's our preferred way of writing it out. So there are almost no scrolls, Christian scroll or book roll. So the Jewish people stayed with book rolls for a long time, right into the Middle Ages. But even the Jewish people, by the time you get to the 8th and ninth century, they're starting to write out scripture in Hebrew on pages that are bound together. So the great codex Leningrad, that's the basis of the Masoretic text, the Hebrew Bible, it's a codex. So was the Aleppo Codex. And so the scrolls became obsolete, more like decoration or artifact or some relic or something like that. So it was the Christians that preferred the Codex very early on. And added, what's interesting, on the basis of discoveries at Oxyricus, where we have several hundred thousand pages of papyrus, it is deduced that in the second and third centuries, the majority of texts that are codex form are Christian. And it's the pagans themselves that follow the Christian lead, as one scholar put it. I think it was the late Larry Hurtado. This was one of the only times, or maybe it was Dan Wallace, one of the only times where Christianity, when it came to culture, 
was ahead of the curve. And so the book culture said, you know what? The Codex is a good way of doing it. Like take Pompeii, for example, and Herculaneum, covered by volcanic ash in the year 79. Well, at Herculaneum, we have the House of the Papyri. 1,200 book rolls have been recovered, not one Codex. They're all strolls. But if you would find church with its library, very few would be scrolls, maybe Old Testament writings. The Christian writings would be codex form. And that's what we find. Like these fragments I just mentioned to you, P52, the fragment of John 18, P64, the fragment of Matthew 26. They're written on both sides. They're not scrolls written on only one side. They're pages of a book written on both sides. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why the Codex was popular. You use both sides of the page. So you got more for your money, more words on paper for your money. And that was another reason for it, too. So I guess it seems like the uh, the early Christians knew that, well, first of all, Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law, but the new material needed to go with it, needed to literally, physically accompany it in order to make sure the message of the gospel was spread. Because if if not, then you would have, perhaps in a lot of cases, two separate sets of documents that wouldn't go together. People that would take them, study them, better uh, may not realize that they're supposed to go together. Oh, you're absolutely correct. I mean, Jesus himself says, you know, I haven't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law of the prophets. Well, you can't understand Paul's theology, Jesus's theology, the distinctive contributions of the evangelists. You cannot understand them if you ignore the Old Testament, if you don't consult. I mean, how do you understand gospel if you don't don't refer to the book of Isaiah about the good news being proclaimed in the hills? If you don't look at Isaiah, you're not going to understand Jesus's proclamation of the gospel. And so, yes, of course, the early church knew it's challenging the Roman imperial doctrine of the Son of God, the Caesar who's Son of God, who begins the good news. Sure, they're challenging that, and Mark 1.1 definitely challenges that, imitates the language of the imperial cult. But the content of the gospel that Jesus proclaimed, that his apostles proclaimed, cannot be understood if you don't look at Isaiah and related passages in the Old Testament. So that's a very important point to make. A popular preacher a few years ago here in the United States said we need to unhitch the Old Testament from the Christian message, from the church. Of course, he was severely rebuked for that and did walk it back later. But how disappointing. How could somebody, seminary-trained preacher, popular preacher, well-known, be that misguided and reintroduce the heresy of Marcion? That was very ignorant. So I need to emphasize that Jesus was preaching his teaching, his apostles' preaching and teaching, cannot be fully understood unless you engage, carefully read the Old Testament. That makes sense. So when do you think, if you were transported back to that, you know, whatever time it is, that you'd be able to hold in your hand a codex that comprised 95% of the Bible that we, we consider today? Well, I can be very precise of answering that. We have two examples of it, both of them coming from about the year 340, and that's Codex Vaticanus and Codex... Sinaiticus. Both of those codices, we believe, I mean, there are a few pages missing here and there, several pages missing from Sinaiticus. Uh, The last part of Vaticanus at about Hebrews 5 got lost and had to be later recopied. But these were complete Bibles in Greek of both the Old Testament translated in Greek, what we call the Septuagint, and the New Testament. And so this 
you would never be able to hold it in a hand because they weigh like 40 pounds. These are big, heavy books. So to answer your question, when Erasmus in the 16th century was preparing his diglot, Latin and Greek New Testament, two, you know, the parallel columns side by side, Latin and Greek, there were only a handful at that time, only a handful of codices in existence in Europe where you had all 27 New Testament books. And Erasmus had eight manuscripts. Not one of them had all of the New Testament. In fact, only one of them had a copy of Revelation, and it was missing its last page. That's the way it was in the year 1516. So the way it is today, you and I could go into a bookstore and buy the complete Bible with the Apocrypha. I've got one right here in front of me. I can buy all 66 books plus the Apocryphal books, and they're inside the cover of a single book, which I can very easily hold in one hand. That only weighs about a pound and a half. That was not, that was not the reality uh, prior to the Gutenberg Press. In fact, it wasn't the reality even later. Miniature Bibles that were small enough to carry began to be developed during the Reformation, mostly to hide Scripture because it was illegal in some places to have copies of Scripture or to have them in the English or German language instead of the official Latin or whatever. So the way it is today was not the way it was in antiquity. Yeah, very interesting. With again, I think it was too modernized. I guess if all this material came together, you know, whoever put it together would put like you know a commemorative edition together. I guess that didn't happen, but if it did, when would it or when might it have happened? When there would have been a burst of printing of some form, you know, proto form of the Bible as we know it today. What do you a lot of copies made, let's say, that were incredibly similar, again, to commemorate something. Well, you know, it came close in a way when Christianity was legalized. Emperor Costing was aware that churches had been destroyed and Christian books had been burned. So he ordered 50 copies of scripture to be made. Now, we don't know, and that would be in the 320s. We don't know. Some think Vaticanus and Sinaiticus are two of those 50. Others say, no, they're probably, they're more fancy. They're a little later. The description that Eusebius gives of the 50 copies is that they're not fancy. They're workmanlike, what we might call paperbacks, not fancy, not glossy. And so they may have just been 50 copies of the Gospels for some of them were copies of all four Gospels. Some of them were copies of Paul's letters. It's real hard to say. We're not real sure what that meant. But that would be an example of your question. However, when the Gutenberg printing press was invented, and then Erasmus created the first New Testament, Greek New Testament, the complete, and that's what he calls it, by the way, Omne. In fact, here's a little footnote for your viewers, for your uh, audience. The name of his New Testament was not New Testament, the first edition, 1516. It was called Novum Instrumentum Omne. That is the complete new document. Isn't that interesting? And of course, he was criticized that. And so when the second edition came out three years later, the first edition was prepared in haste, had typos. So the second edition came out in 1519, and it was called Novum Testamentum Omne, the more familiar title, which stuck with all the rest of the copies. So in other words, New Testament complete, the complete New Testament. You can see that and Google it. It's easy to find images of the title page of the Novum Testament of Omne, and you actually see the word Omne, meaning all of it total. At 
who would think of that now? Wouldn't it seem strange if you or, or I went into a bookstore and said, I'd like to buy a copy of the New Testament. And then one of them is sitting there on the table and it says, the complete New Testament. Do they sell incomplete New Testaments? That would strike us as very strange. But in the days of Erasmus, as I said earlier, out of the six or 7,000 New Testament manuscripts, codices available at that time, but if you add Latin, add another eight or 9,000, there are like two dozen that are complete. There are very few possible. If you and I went back into time, went back to the year 1500 or something, and said, well, let's go buy a, a New Testament, that would not be possible. We would have to hire somebody to make one, and it'd be huge, huge hustle. What about, last question, what about table of contents? Does anyone know? Has anyone studied when the first table of contents came into existence? And would there have existed one, you know, that said, all right, this is canon, separate from the Bible, these scrolls? Have you heard of the Muratorian fragment? No. It's controversial. Some date it to the late 2nd century, and some date it 4th century. If it dates to the 2nd century, and it's written in Latin, then and it would answer your question. That would be the very first that we know of, table of contents. It was somebody wrote out a list of the names of the books that belong to the New Testament. Some say, now this is somebody's pretending to be writing the second century. It really belongs to the fourth century. But to answer your question further, yes, there actually are lists. There are canonical lists where people list the books of the Old Testament, of the Apoc, of the New Testament, and various spurious books, and they'll say these are the writings that can be read in church, which means they're canonical. These writings should not be read in church. Or sometimes they'll say these writings are okay to read in private study, but they shouldn't be read in church. And then otherwise they'll say these are outright false, these are heretical, you should never read. So we, we get people as early as the fourth century or the 2nd century, if Muratorian is to be dated there, giving lists, canonical lists of books that are inside or outside the canon. So there very much was an awareness of that. But what didn't happen was to have all those books between two covers as a single book. The, li the scripture was seen as a library, not as a single book. And so the idea of calling it a Bible or a book, that's a later idea. It's a library, and it's a collection of sacred books. And it's only when paper gets a whole lot thinner and print smaller, that we can start printing up Bibles that are a complete book that a person can hold in his hand, or a New Testament that you could slip into your pocket. But that's a leader. Okay, excellent. Well, Craig, I can talk to you for a long time. You know so much. This has been a fantastic interview. I appreciate you coming. Where can people go to dip their toe in and start to see your writings, your articles? You know, where where should they start? Any recommendations? Well, I do have a web page, www.craigaevans.com. I think it's pretty up to date. List my books there, and there are some videos that people can watch, no charge, hear me talking about some of these things. So that's one place to go. And of course, if you Google my name, Craig A. Evans, you'll get lots of hits and lots of my books will be listed there. Okay, well, very good. Craig, it's been a pleasure to speak to you today. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 
This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.